can't tell you how much I appreciate good music. I'm not a musician, but I love music well enough. If I'd ever gotten into it, I'd have never become a preacher, that's for sure, you know. <laughs> I think the way that the songs are written is just wonderful, and uh, my heart's always a blessed, and I'm thankful for those who invest in learning to play the instruments, the discipline uh, for that. You know, the, the uh, music of the Eastern religions, I remember the first time I heard some of that and many years ago when I was in the service, and it has such a minor chord about it. It's just sad, you know what I mean? It's just, it's sad. Uh, the minarets, when they call people to prayer and so forth, to me just has a sad note to it. And I guess that fits because I don't know what hope there really is. But Christian music are to lift the heart and are to lift the spirit, and um, I believe that's exactly what it does do. Now, we've been looking forward to coming. Um, every time I come very far north, because I am certainly a southern boy, you can't tell by the accent or, or lack of accent, which or where it is. When I joined the Navy, uh, I did make my way to New London, Connecticut, and that was certainly another world to me. My wife and I had just gotten married, and the only kind of church I'd ever been to, basically, pretty much, was a, just a regular old southern, not very large maybe 40 people, independent Baptist church. And I figured every Baptist church was just like that. And so when we got to New London, we didn't even have a car. And I remember the first Sunday we walked probably about two miles downtown. We didn't live too far from the downtown area. My wife carried her shoes in her hand, high heel shoes. And I couldn't hardly tell where they were in the Bible. I mean, you really didn't need a Bible very much for that service. And I thought, you know, we were in a different place and a different situation. And finally, we did find um, a church in the New London area that preached the gospel, and I cannot tell you what a blessing that was. It's such an eye-opener that you don't have one everywhere. If you have a good church, never take it for granted. And I told my wife yesterday as we had just walked around some, and of course I was here in 2006, and, but you come down through here and see all the stores, you can buy about everything within two blocks I guess you'd ever want, and... Um, all the apartment buildings or whatever you call those. And then Open Door uh, Bible Baptist Church. And I thought, isn't this wonderful that this has just been slipped in here? And I thought, this is amazing. I remember when Jack Hiles was still living, being in Hammond, Indiana, and, and that's a lot of a mining area uh, for coal and things up. They bring a lot of that through there. And then smelteries for steel and things. It's, it's kind of a really dirty town in the sense of the uh, smoke and things it puts out. But you walk into that church, and I remember it was bright yellow and white and trim and beautiful. And he said, we're just trying to make a little piece of heaven up here around all the rest of this. And I thought, that's, that's wonderful. And, of course, the fellowship you have with each other uh, means a great deal. So, anyway, it's good to be here. Really enjoyed the day. Uh, we've been in New York a number of times. Sometimes when we came here before, going to the, on our way to Israel, we didn't really know that many people around, didn't know a church right in the downtown area, but we've always enjoyed being here. And the Hardy family likes the Montoro family. And I, that includes my son, and, and I'm the patriarch. I only have one son, and there are other Hardys other than us, but we always enjoy your pastor and his, his family. And Peter was in my class at Heartland, and I certainly enjoyed that and our time jogging together. I think that's how we really got acquainted the first time I was up here is that Peter and I went jogging and so forth. Now... Evidently, the pastor said something to y'all. My, my bicycle had a horrible wreck last Friday, and I had the misfortune of being on it uh, when it did that. I'm still upset with my bicycle, <laughs> and it's kind of messed up too, but next to our house is a small lake. It's about three miles around it, and there's a paved walkway where you can get some exercise. I moved there for that because I wanted to take away all the excuses I could for me not getting my exercise. So I knew I just had to be a great sinner not to get it. So I've been riding my bike a lot this year instead of jogging. I've jogged for so many years I've created a foot problem, I guess. But anyway, I was riding my bike, and not real fast, but maybe 15 to 18 miles an hour, and there's people walking on the sidewalk. They always are, and I've, I've passed them hundreds of times, and a man and his wife are walking. The sidewalk's about 8 feet wide. She was on the right-hand side. He was in the middle, and I had plenty of room to go on the left. But just as I got even with him to go on the left, he stepped in front of me. He didn't see me, but he stepped in front of me, and so I started off of the concrete quickly on my bike, just turned it, 
And right where the grass and the dirt met the concrete, we've had a real dry season in Oklahoma. The dirt had pulled away from the concrete and made, you know, just a little furrow there. And my bike tire went right down in it. And as soon as it did, it just flipped upside down. And so I, I can't crawl that fast on the concrete. So it's just not a good picture. <laughs> That's what has happened. But I'm, and I'm sorry if it is a, um, a distraction. Well, let me invite you tonight to the first psalm. Have your Bibles turned to the first psalm. I love reading the psalms for one reason, because David is a great character in the Old Testament. Of course, my name is David, but that's not the reason. David is so transparent. You, you just If it's good, you know it. If he did bad, you know it. He's really transparent. And by that, I don't mean he was crude or anything. I'm just saying he didn't try to hide those things. He, he was who he was. And people don't have to be just like me, but it's, I have to know who they are and what they are because I have trouble if I don't know that. And so I've learned a lot from the life um, of David. Now, the first psalm, uh, many commentators say, is a digest of the whole Psalter or the whole psalm. In other words, contained in these six verses is the general idea out of all the psalms. You read the whole thing and finally ever get it down, this is the general idea. So in a great degree, if you could understand the first psalm and begin to practice that in your life, then you would really have uh, the meat of the matter for the entire psalm. So I'm going to ask you to stand, if you can please, in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'll read the psalm in its entirety, which is only six verses, but we will only look at verse 1 uh, tonight. And if you'll follow on silently as I read audibly. Blessed is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Now that's the first half of the first psalm about the man who aligns his life with God, which you're going to see all the way through the rest of the psalm. The last half is with the man who does not. The ungodly are not so, but are like the shaft which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Father, thank you for the privilege ours tonight in freedom and without fear to be able to study your word. I want to thank you once again that you came into my life when I was 14 years of age when I heard a, a clear presentation of the gospel. And I decided then I needed to give my life to you and trust you as my personal Savior. Only by doing that would I know that heaven was my home. And I can remember that night. I remember the surroundings. I, I remember some of the music. I remember the text and the message. And Lord, I'll never forget that day. My life wasn't changed overnight, but the process began. And, of course, that night, my name was written down in the Lamb's Book of Life, and salvation was secured for me. But what has amazed me and rejoiced my heart a, a thousand times over is that you continue to work in my life and try to make me more like you and to be able to follow your word, and I thank you for that. I want to thank you for the Montoros and the vision they had to come here. And then I want to thank you for these good people who come tonight. I would expect there are people here who worked all day, and they're tired and weary in body. Uh, but I pray that you would strengthen them and give them a special measure of grace. And also, Lord, I'm, I, I didn't come here that I might just stand in somebody's pulpit in front of people and hear myself talk. But I would wish that the truth of your word would be a special blessing to someone tonight. If we could just live or return to Bible truth, live by Bible truth, what a great difference it would make in our lives. And if the people of America in general would do that, it would bring revival to our country. 
It would be amazing what would happen in America if your people who are called by your name would humble themselves and pray and seek your face and turn from their wicked ways because you promised us that you would hear from heaven that you'd forgive us and that you would heal our land and we'd need that desperately. Until maybe that time comes, may we as individuals learn from your word and practice it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What do you need to do? Already? I didn't know I preached that long. I've already run down the first set of batteries. It's going to be a long night, huh? You know, success is measured in a myriad uh, number of ways today. You know, what standard you use for the word success. And I, I think it's a kind of a shallow word and, and one that's maybe been overused. Uh, but I'm not sure what word to use other than that tonight. Uh, for some people, that's money. If you have enough money, uh, then you're considered successful. And, and I'm, I'm quite certain that's mostly by the world standard and certainly walking downtown your place and with the Trump Tower and things like that, you'd have to say, certainly, we know without a doubt that some people measure success by how much money that they have. Now, I don't think there's anything wrong with having it. The Bible doesn't say there's anything wrong with having it. It's, you can get too much love for it and uh, be consumed with it. I've had a friend who said, you know, I've had money and not had it. He said, generally speaking, it's better to have it. And I'd always rather have uh, just a little, but for some people, that is the measure of their life and, uh, you know, whether they are successful or not. For others, it is name recognition. If a lot of people know their name, some people, their name is a household name, and, and maybe it's someone out of Hollywood or somebody else, but almost everyone uh, would know that name. For some people, uh, it would be power, uh, the ability to just get things done, um, and have a number of people who are under you. Or maybe for some people, it would be appearance. Always judging ourselves by others and looking in the mirror and trying to do what we uh, can and buy all the products and so forth. And so for, these are just a few of the ways that people might measure what we might consider uh, success. Now, I think probably God's people, um, to a degree, are a little bit like the lost world in that respect. I think if we're going to be honest, we can't say that money means nothing to us or recognition means nothing to us because we like to be accepted of other people or power or those things. But I think there are also some very uh, close ties between us in a sense that I would say probably the most important thing about success, if I use that word and I'll quit using it pretty soon, is that we could just be happy. Now, does making difference how much money you have if you can't enjoy the money? You know, a money can buy a bed, but it can't buy sleep. Money can buy you a house, but it really can't make you a home. Uh, money can buy a doctor and medicine, but it can't buy you health. You know what I mean? But those are the things uh, that we're really looking for. So it doesn't make any difference if we have money, if we have power, if we have name recognition, uh, whatever the case, our appearance, we just think everything is impeccable. If by having that, you can't have a degree of happiness, uh, then what benefit is it? And we probably all know people, and I have known a number, who are quite wealthy, but they're not happy people. I know people who have far less money that are much happier, and you ask me, if I've got to choose between the two, well, I'm certainly going to take the position of the person who is happy who has far less. So, And I think you already know that. I think I can tell by looking at the countenance on your face. Now, I'm not trying to make the word happy a greater word uh, than it is. Now, the Bible talks about joy, uh, which is wonderful. I love the verse, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Uh, we have the one son. We had complications at birth with him, and, and we were counseled not to have any more. Probably now with all the technology, that wouldn't have been an issue but my son is a pastor. I know his heart. Watched him grow up, of course. And it does bring me great joy, uh, you know, that he wants to serve the Lord. So joy is a word. And then happiness, of course, is in there as well. 
And then there's the word pleasure. But sometimes we kind of confuse those just a little. But the word that is probably used the most happens to be the word happiness. Now, in our text, we're just going to look at the first verse here tonight. And the word blessing actually fits happiness better than the other three. And so that's the one that the translators use. If we were to say it maybe a little different to understand it a little bit better, the word blessed would be the most desired state. In other words, if you looked at the total human being, not that he just had excessive money or had excessive power or name recognition, but if you take those pieces and put together, someone said to you, if you could be any kind of person you wanted to be, what would you list? What would have to be those characteristics you'd have to have? Then you would have what this word means. The blessed means that most desired state. In other words, if you could be in the best state of each area, now we're not talking about Texas and Oklahoma, but you know that place in your life, then you would have this particular man right here. The word blessed is a, is a wonderful word. It kind of makes me think about some of those other Bible words that I really enjoy. For instance, the word grace. Uh, I love grace. You notice Paul starts all of his letters with the word grace. He ends his letters with the word grace. Of course, I'm married uh, to a young lady named Grace. And as a matter of fact, we've been married 50 years next March. And I've enjoyed those years. And she is a gracious person. But aren't you thankful for God's grace? That is a wonderful word. Uh, maybe another word that I think is a beautiful Bible word is the word peace from shalom. And, and it means more than just the absence of war. So this word blessed is a really special word. Now today in America, and I don't know if you have the same advertisements and so forth on TV up here that we have down south, but I think America has just about gotten to the place uh, that the only way you can be happy is if you can get every single thing that you've ever wanted. Now, we have an, an, an advertisement that comes on every now and then, and we're not TV watchers, but we do watch the news. We don't have time for very much of it, and there's nothing worth watching for the most part anyway. But on this particular commercial, here's a guy that his car has broken down, and he needs a car. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He's kind of standing beside the road, and down the road he sees what looks like a big stack of people Probably, may, we could say it may be as wide as uh, these pews right here, but it's about 30 feet tall. It's just a mob of people, and this thing's coming towards him. And it's kind of like a flatbed truck, I suppose, with all these people kind of piled up, and I guess they have something to stand on. And a guy's on the front, and he's kind of sitting at a desk, and he's got a rubber stamp with his applications. And the whole deal is, is that all of these people, like this man, needed a car, and nobody was turned down. No matter if your credit's bad or anything else. In other words, it was yes, 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 whatever you want, yes, you can have it. And the American people have been duped to think that that's what makes them happy is never being told no, but they can have everything that they want. But now that's not what the Bible really says. I want you to notice about verse 1 is that the happy man is first of all described with three negatives, if you'll look at the text here uh, in just a moment. And by the way, what does a happy person really look like? Do you think that we probably judge that by how photogenic they are? How good they can smile, how white their teeth are? Do you know how fast that can change? As soon as the click of the camera's gone, many times it's over with. But the first three verses of the first psalm is the Old Testament portrait of a happy man. But the world many times is able to allure us and confuse us by making us think that something else, you know, really is happiness. But what we have here is the genuine picture, Old Testament picture, of a happy man. And first of all, he's described by things that he does not do. Now, I'm going to give you an illustration from my own life. Now, I got saved when I was 14 years of age in a little independent Baptist church in Arlington, Texas. A big day for us would be 35 people. But I wandered into that church when I was 14. My wife's stepbrother invited me, and I went, and for the first time I heard a good gospel presentation. 
And that was a great day in my life, and I mentioned that in my prayer a moment ago. But when I turned 17, then uh, I went in the Navy, went to boot camp at San Diego. That would have been 1961, the last of 1961. Got to boot camp, finished that, and it was in New London, Connecticut, at submarine school in the early part of 1962. And then that same year, uh, boarded my first and only submarine, spent four years on the same submarine, working out of Charleston, South Carolina. Now, I'm a Christian. I've trusted Christ as my personal Savior. Now, I think we all know that you're not any more of a Christian in church than you are at work. Amen? You should be just as much for the Lord at work as you are right here. Uh, You should be just as much of a Christian at school as you are right here. You say, what are you saying, Brother Hardy? Uh, There's something wrong with the fact with people that can say a good word for the Lord when they're in church, but that's the only time they can do it. And then, of course, when I went in the Navy, I don't know if you know about this, but sailors are really not known for their spirituality. As a fact, they're known for their language many times. They can turn the air blue uh, with how much they can curse and so forth. And so I remember after getting on the USS submarine sent in, and I'll probably use another illustration here tonight, but after I'd been on there a few months, well, the uh, captain and executive officer asked me to come in, and so I came in, and I'm a 17-year-old sailor, you know, not a preacher, a 17-year-old sailor has been saved about three years, and here's the first things out of their mouth. They said, Hardy, you don't go out on a town at night, do you? I said, no, sir, I'm married, and I'm a Christian. I don't go out on a town at night. I said, every time the sun goes down, I'm going to be on this submarine because I'm not attracted to sailors, and I'm still not (laughs) after all these years. And then they said, you don't drink, do you? I said, no, sir, I don't drink. I've never touched the stuff I don't drink. You don't do any drugs, do you? No, sir, I I don't. You don't have any of those girl pictures on your locker and stuff during the submarine, do you? I said, no, sir, I, I don't. You don't even smoke, do you? And I said, no, sir, I don't. Now, this is by the captain of the submarine. Now, here's what I want you to notice. Do you know how they identified me? By what I did or by what I, not, I did not do? Are you listening? They identified me as being the kind of man they wanted by what I did not do. I didn't think about that for years because I don't like the idea of negativism or a negative connotation, but you'll never live a more positive life in your life than living for Christ. And so here's what we have, three things here, just at verse 1. Blessed or happy is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, or standeth in the way of sinners, or sitteth in the seat of the scornful. The verse is just filled with three, what some people refer to maybe as negative. So number one, The happy man has to watch his direction because he says the happy man does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. In other words, uh, that's not where we spend our time learning is from people who do not know uh, the Lord. Now, you can get good counsel from a lot of people, especially God's people, but there's a lot of bad counsel out there as well. I've often said that I never made one bad decision when I got godly counsel. Now, that's the truth. When I would humble myself and decide, you know, I don't know it all, and I would go to people, and I'm not talking about going to my friends who would say what I want to hear. That's not godly counsel. That's your counsel, and you just want to hear somebody else say what you've already thought. But I can't remember one time that I made a bad decision when I went to people who were mature in the Lord, that cared for me and and loved the Lord, When I got their counsel and I followed it, I I cannot recall, my wife has been married nearly 50 years, she could say something if she chooses, making a bad decision. But you ought to see how many bad ones I made all of my own. And you know those things are something you should really pay for too. I'm thinking now about Rehoboam. Remember when Solomon was king, uh, Israel became the wealthiest nation that it had ever been. And of course, when Solomon died, uh, Rehoboam is coming on the scene and... uh, he talked to the wise men. He said, uh, what would you say to me as com- becoming king? And they said, well, one thing your dad did, he really taxed us really heavy, and the people need a little bit of relief. Now, we could identify with that, couldn't we? <laughs> 
the people could use a little bit of relief. If you'd give them a little bit of relief, they will serve you the rest of their lives. But then the Bible said he would not follow that counsel, but talked to some of his younger friends and so forth, and they said, no, sir, just raise the tax because they felt like they'd get in on that since they were his buddies and so forth. And it says he forsook the counsel of the wise men, the older men. He did what the young men said. And you'll remember now, there were 12 tribes in Israel. And when he did that, 10 of them bailed out. And that was a poor decision he made. But the happy man must watch his direction. He cannot walk in the counsel of the ungodly. And probably all of us have suffered by working in the counsel, walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, not all counsel is formal, is it? I mean, you can make an appointment and go to an office and talk to a financial counselor or a medical counselor or somebody else, but a great amount and probably most of the counsel we get is what I call informal counsel. It's just people that we talk with. Do you know, as a matter of fact, all the information that comes into our ear gates or our eye gates or whatever, to a degree, that's counseling. Now, I'll tell you where we get a lot of bad counseling. People get it from the music that they listen to. You ever paid any attention to the lyrics, the words of what that says? I'll tell you, if it's ungodly stuff, you need to turn it off and leave it alone because it's going to have an effect sooner or later in your life. So happy is a man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So you've got to have two things in mind here. We've got a person who's going a certain direction, but exactly how he goes that direction is determined a little bit by the counsel that he gets. So you've got to keep two things in mind, movement and then taking in information and taking in information and movement and how they somewhat work uh, together. As a matter of fact, a person already even watched the way that they lean. You know, before I walk, if you've ever noticed somebody walks, it's interesting to watch people walk. Some people remind me of a chicken when they walk. I mean, <laughs> y'all don't know what chickens are except that they're, they're already fixed up here. You know, we were talking to some of the kids a while ago and they're not... They don't know what a brooder house is and things. I don't know. We're going to have to have some education here, Brother Pete. But before a person walks, there will be a lean. We like to burn wood in the wintertime in our fireplace in Oakland. That fan just turned my page, and I just think I asked about that a little bit here. That's all right. (laughs) We like to burn wood, and so as a result, I go out and cut wood. Now, I don't know how many of y'all use a chainsaw. I don't know if you use that much around here, but we use them in Oklahoma to cut down trees. It's a good idea to look at that tree and cut the right side of it. If you cut the... Peter's cut some. He's used my son's chainsaw. If you cut the wrong side, it will smite you. (laughs) That tree will fall on you because I think we all know however something leans, you can just about mark it down, that is the way it's going to go. And I'll be talking to friends, and they're walking so close to an edge of maybe the wrong kind of music or programs on TV or whatever, and they say, well, you know, I don't see anything wrong with it. But the point is, what do you see that's right about it? And when I think of that, I think about Genesis chapter 13. We'll not turn there. Remember Abraham and Lot? If you look at those two men, Abraham pretty much had a pretty straight walk, but Lot was continually... Walking close to the edge or close to the border. And you'll remember when they finally had so much uh, in a way of flocks and servants and everything, they couldn't hardly dwell together. And Abraham said, you, you take the area you want. And the Bible says that Lot pitched his tent toward Sodom. I mean, it says that for a very special reason. And it lets us learn from his life that when you lean a certain direction or pitch a certain direction, in all likelihood, that is the direction that eventually, someday, you're going to go. You know, we need to catch things when they're really small. Because once they start getting out of hand, you can't do much with it. I was reading A.W. Tozer here a while back, and he really convicted me. He does that every now and then. And he said, if you want to know what kind of person you are, pay attention to where your mind goes when it's free to think on anything it wants to. You see, sometimes we direct our mind to think on something, like balancing the checkbook, or like reading a particular book. But then maybe there'll be a little bit of free time, 
and the mind can think of anything it wants to. Maybe tonight at night we go to bed or whatever. It's free to think on anything it wants to. That's kind of scary, isn't it? Because our hearts are desperately wicked. And we gotta, when we see that stuff, we've got we to gotta stop it, bring it into check. So the happy man, first of all, does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. Now, what does it say second? Nor does he stand in the way uh, of sinners. When I first uh, boarded the USS Senate, that submarine, I still remember that day. And I went to the Navy base there in Charleston, South Carolina, found my way down to the pier submarine where the submarines were tied up. And I saw my submarine, SS-408, the USS Senate, my home for four years, and I saw it tied up at the pier. And I walked down the pier and got to the gangplank where you go over it and started across and saluted Old Glory and asked the topside watch, the man on guard, for permission to board. And he said, permission granted. Well, I had my orders in my hand, and I gave it to him. Of course, it had my name and serial number on it, and so he was logging all that in. He said, Hardy, where are you from? I said, I'm from Texas. Boy, a big old smile broke out on his face. He said, put her here, buddy. I'm from Texas, too. Well, I was happy. Here's somebody else from Texas, and uh, he wrote it all down and everything. He says, tell you what, I'll be off watch here in about 10 to 15 minutes. I'm going to take you over on the beach and buy you a drink. And I said, Lord, I don't need this to start this way. Now, nobody here could comprehend how important it is to get along with people on the submarine. But if this building was full of people and you close these doors and seal everything up and nobody leaves here for about 60 days, you think a, a fight might break out? I mean... You don't know how to get along that well yet, probably, even as brothers and sisters in Christ. The number one thing you've got to have to stay on a submarine is to be able to get along with people. I didn't need the first person I met on the submarine I was going to go on to have a difference with me. I tried everything I could. I said, uh, you know, my wife's waiting for me. I'm short on time. I just need to check in. I need to get home. He said, no, I won't keep you very long. You're from Texas. I'm from Texas. And when I get off a watch here, I'm going to take you on a beach and we are going to have a drink. And I just had to say, well, his name was Sammy Jack Pendleton. I said, Sammy Jack, I'm a Christian and I don't drink and I'm not going on a beach with you now or ever. And he said, I don't like you. Now, that's not fun. But if you've got to choose between that and pleasing the Lord, what are you going to do? I need the Lord in my life desperately, and I want Him to know if push comes to shove, He is number one. And I promise you decisions are going to come in your life where you're going to have to make that. And when you put the other person first, you're going to know something about yourself, and that is that you are not loyal to God and that your love for Him is not the right. Now it says, you know, blessed is man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners. There's a couple of thoughts, and actually more, that could be brought in about that. See, the sinner has his way. Sammy Jack was a sinner. He didn't know the Lord, but he had his way. And his way was of living life a certain way. He was into immorality. He was into drinking, uh, whatever. When we went to ports, it was very free. Uh, sailors have the idea that once you throw the lines off of your ship and your ship goes out to sea that all family ties are broken and at least for that period of time it's okay, you're free to do what you want. I mean, you say, where do they get that? It doesn't make any difference where they get it. They have it. And I'm just telling you that's their way. So the sinner has his way and I'm telling you the Christian's way and the sinner's way, they don't meet very often. They have nothing to do with each other. And so this, the Bible tells us, what is a happy man like? Well, a happy man doesn't walk in the counsel of ungodly. I don't care how much he smiles. If he's walking in the counsel of the ungodly, he's not a blessed man. And he says he doesn't stand in the way of sinners. In other words, this is the sinner's way over here. The Bible talks about a broad way and many that find it and a narrow way and few that find that that's to eternal life. And so we have two completely uh, different ways. And we're not supposed to stand in the way of the sinner. 
Now, there's another thing you could say too. If you could picture for a moment, uh, I'm standing here, and let's just say I'm a lost man. And let's just say that Peter's standing right here, Peter Montoro's standing right here, and his dad, Pete Montoro, is right over there. Now, I'm a lost person, and what I really need to see is a person really living for Christ. Now, let's say for sake of illustration that Peter is not living for Christ. He's standing like a sinner stands. In other words, he's a carnal Christian. But he's right here, and his father's on the other side. I can't see the godly man. All I can see is the carnal Christian. He's standing in my way. I'm a sinner. He's over living how I live, doing what I do, and he may be saved, but I can't see the real thing because he is in between me and the godly person. See, there's two things. You don't want to stand in the way of the sinner. In other words, you don't want to be where he is, and when, you, when the Christian is where he is, he's not only unhappy, but very detrimental to other people finding Christ as a personal Savior. It's going to be a sad day in heaven. In fact, it's one of the greatest fears I've ever had. My wife's heard me say this. One of the greatest fears I have is that someday when I stand before the Lord, that some other person will be there and say, I'm less of a Christian today because I met Dave Hardy. Instead of lifting me up, he pulled me down. And that's something I would wish would never happen. Now, maybe it'll happen, but I wish to God it would never happen. I'd pretty much rather God just take me out of this life than for that to happen. So the happy man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners. And then it says he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Well, the Bible indicates one of the first things you can see in recognition of a scoffer or a scorner. Those who scoff turn into scorners are people that do not listen. Now, in every church, and I only pastored one church, and I pastored the same church for 30 years. In fact, when I resigned, I had one family with four generations there by then. And I love pastoring the same group of people, but you do make a lot of observations. Now, you may not know this, or you may, or maybe you just haven't thought about it, but at least take a church where a pastor does pastor that long. In that church, there were some people that grew, uh, we use the term down south, grew like weeds. You ever notice weeds can grow when nothing else can? They have a good root system. They can really get on with it. And some grew, maybe not that much, but they grew. And then some didn't seem to grow at all, hardly. And then some, you just, you just really wondered. You never really knew. Hard to see spiritual fruit. Why on earth would that be true? Because those people at Eastland Baptist Church sat inside the same building. They heard the same Bible. And they heard it from the same man. Every one of them heard exactly the same thing. Then why didn't they all grow at the same rate? Then it had to do with the individual person, didn't it? So one of the first things you see about a scorner is that they just don't learn. Do you remember now Abraham and Lot? What is it in chapter 13? We talked about he pitched his tent towards Sodom. And do you remember time you get to chapter 14 that Chedorlaomer and some of the kings up in the north came down and attacked the area of Sodom and Gomorrah and that area where Lot lived and took him away captive and others. And, and Abraham had to take his servants and go rescue them and bring them back. Do you think Lot learned anything? No, he didn't learn anything from that. He didn't learn in the first part of his life of watching how God had blessed Abraham. He didn't learn anything when he was down living close to these people when they were carried away into captivity. And then after Abraham actually rescued them, then by the time you get to Genesis chapter 19, see, first of all, Lot just pitched his tent towards Sodom, but he didn't learn anything. And then he was living in Sodom because he was carried away. And when you get to Genesis chapter 19, he's sitting in the gate of Sodom when the angels of the Lord come. What does that mean, sitting in a gate? He's sitting in the seat of the scornful because sitting in a gate is a place of prominence for the lost people of that city. And it's just a movement, I think, that we make. Now, let me give you a true illustration story 
that I wish had never happened, but it did happen, and, and I experienced it. It would have been about 1994 that a young man and his wife and two little children came to Eastland Baptist Church. Um, the man was not a tall man. He was probably about 5'7", and his wife was even shorter yet. But they were a sharp couple, and I think this man could do almost anything. I mean, he could draw his great penmanship. He, if we had a missions conference, he could draw stuff. It's unbelievable what he could do. He could draw signs. He could do woodworking. He could do a certain amount of mechanical. He was an extremely gifted man. And he could stand on his feet and speak well. And Tammy was the same way as wife. She was a very good speaker. I remember back about that time um, in Oklahoma, we still didn't have liquor by the drink in our state. And we went to kind of a town hall meeting about that, and my wife and I got there late. And so the doors were closed, but we could hear somebody talking. And this lady was talking, I said to my wife, I said, that woman can hold her own. Very articulate. Uh, and I thought, I'd like to see who that is. And we're able to open the door. It was Tammy. It was, it was our, our girl, you know. Now, I'm just painting the picture for you that they could just do so much. But after he'd, they'd been in a church a year or two or something like that, I, I could tell some things weren't wrong. He was having trouble paying his bills, and he came by and talked to me once or twice, and I did, and then finally the deacons talked with him and so forth. And we finally began to discover, you know, he just couldn't seem to work for people. And then he was trying to work on his own, and so he maybe going to draw some uh, signs and do some work from people, and he'd get an advancement of money up front, and then maybe he would not finish the job. Now, without making the story real drawn out, over a period of time, uh, a few years, he pretty much just wore down the people of Eastland Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, just to the point that they didn't know how to greet him or his wife or anything because they'd been used and they'd give their money or try to help him and nothing ever got better. And it took several years for this to happen, but it happened. Well, finally, it wasn't working good at all, so he just decided to move. And I think he moved to North Carolina, if I remember it right. And out in North Carolina, um, he wrote several hot checks and so forth, and he finally wound up in prison for about three years. Now, what you could see early on is when I talked to him about his issues, he didn't learn. When the deacons talked to him about those issues, he didn't learn. When the various people of the church had loaned him money and so forth and tried to talk to him, he never did learn. While he was in prison, his wife divorced him. And I, it just kind of fell apart. We didn't know. We just would hear little bit pieces about the family. Their son, Chris, he was probably about 16 or 17 about that time, came back to Tulsa. And the people of our church lovingly took him in and uh, he stayed with some of them. And, and Chris was just doing great. When Chris turned 18, his father got out of prison and came back to Tulsa, Oklahoma. I thought, surely by now, three years in prison, he has to have learned. And people helped him again, but he had not learned a thing. So it was just Chris and his dad, Wade. The man's name was Wade. His wife's name was Tammy. Tammy did not come back. They were divorced. The daughter did not come back. So things started going downhill again, but much more rapidly this time because the people remembered and they thought, you know, we tried and tried and tried for several years before and nothing ever happened. He never did learn. And now he's back and it's going the same road. So pretty soon everything would just close down and, uh, you know, they would not help him. So he would come to church and finally got a belligerent attitude about him. And eventually the pastor asked him just to, to leave the church because it was just a disturbance for him to come. He said, no, I'm not going to leave. And then the church got a restraining order so that he could not come to church. Isn't that pitiful? It's pitiful. The young man had so much talent and things started out so good that people loved him, did everything they could for them. But the last couple, three times he was there, he said, y'all don't know anything. I'm the one that knows. And big things are going down. You, you just don't know. So then it would have been... Let me check my notes here. On May the 23rd, 2004, that's about 10 years from the time Wade first came to our church. And that was a year after I had left the church. I pastored it 30 years, trained a young man and left. 
It was just a time when I was leaving the church that Wade came back, and then Brother Troy Durrell took, took the church. So on May the 23rd, 2004, Wade Lay and his son Chris walked into a bank in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to rob it. Now, this is a man, his little boy, used to be members of our church. A security guard was there, and when he saw them, he pulled his gun, and when he did, Wade, the father, shot him, but it was just a superficial wound, and then the security guard shot back and wounded Wade Lay pretty good, and Wade said to his son, Chris, I'm shot. Chris was carrying a shotgun under his coat, and he lifted that shotgun up and blew the chest out of that security guard. On September the 28, 2005, Wade Lay was sentenced to death. And his 18-year-old son was sentenced to life in prison. It's the last gift his dad ever gave him. You say, well, I'd never go that far. Wade never intended to either. But when you walk in the counsel of the ungodly and you stand in the way of the sinner, you'll eventually sit in the seat of the scornful. And when you do, you have no idea how far you'll go. You say, that's a sad story. It is. But you know someone that came just shortly after him was named Troy Durrell and his wife, Terry. They had three children at the time. Four more were born while they were at the church with a total of seven. He's short also. I don't know if some of the kids have been up here before, but, but you know, he, he learned and he listened, and now he's had the privilege to serve the Lord. And it's just so different in what happened in the lives of those two uh, different men. Now, we're not going to be like either one of those. We're going to be the person that God's called us to be. But the happy man walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the way of sinners, and he does not sit in the seat of the scornful. That's something that's possible for any of us to do. So I want to encourage you tonight, just think about your life. And if in any way you're not getting godly counsel, um, or you're in the way of sinners, or you're not learning what God wants you to learn, sitting and see the scornful or becoming a scoffer or whatever, I'd encourage you to make a change. Let's all stand our feet with heads bowed and eyes closed this evening. Now, Father, thank you for your goodness to us and for these good people. It hurts my heart every time I think about Wade and Tammy Lay and their two children. I look back, and my wife and I have a lot of hours invested in them. I'm sure something could have been done better, but I don't know of anything we didn't try to do. And it's just a heartache. But I would wish that that would story would maybe prevent somebody else from going down the same road and that we could really be as is in the Bible here a portrait of the happy man defined first of all by what we will not do and then in the next two verses about what we will do but sometimes we have to say no to some things in order to say yes to other things So have your perfect way tonight. If anyone here doesn't know Christ as their personal Savior, that's probably not true on a Wednesday night. But if there is anyone like that, I pray that like me when I was 14, they would trust Christ and know for sure that heaven is their home. But if they are saved, and maybe even members of this church would think about their life and say, am I growing? Am I learning what I'm being taught from the Word of God in this church by our pastor and others who would teach? Am I growing? So, Lord, just have your perfect way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And as we maybe have a verse of invitation, pastors here, if you need to come and talk to him about any of these things, why, this is a great opportunity to do that. Only trust him. He'll always give you good direction. His word is true. It is sure. Every soul by sin oppressed. Mercy with the Lord. Oh, I love 
those old great truths. Surely give us rest. Can only trust in his word. While we sing and pray, anybody else?